Hello and welcome to Next Time, your host Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity, go to Facebook and like our page. Join us on Twitter at 814NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Leonard Pitts Jr. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Miami Herald. Mr. Pitts, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, glad to be here. All right, so we're also joined by two local gentlemen who are standout community leaders and have started organizations of their own that have gotten a lot of traction over the last few years, and they happen to be very excellent fathers as well. We'd also like to welcome Mr. Brandon Wiley, Executive Director of Open Eyes, and Mr. Corey Cook, who is the CEO of Cook Media and the Executive Director of Life Through Music. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. First, I want to start with you, Mr. Pitts. First, thank you so much for coming on. I've read your resume and, and I've followed a lot of your work. Your column is a column that I have been following for quite some time. And I've gotten hyped and excited at a lot of your personal takes. One of the things that I had noticed was a book that you wrote. And the book is called Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood. And before I ask you to comment on that, I know that you wrote an article which somewhat has an about face on some of the, the findings or some of the, the, the conclusions that you came to in your book. But let's start with the book. What was the impetus behind you writing this story? Well, Becoming Dad is about a few things. I mean, it's part memoir. Uh, it deals with my story and the stories of a bunch of other African-American men. Uh, but it is also about um, how you go about making a good father of yourself if you never had that example, either because your father was absent or, as in my case, because your father was present but not really functioning as, as, as a good father should. So that was, the main, that was the main thesis of the book, how do you become a dad when you've never really had a dad? read the book, your story with your own personal father, it sounds like that was a very troubling journey for you. Talk about that a little bit and just what the impact was on you as a child. It, it, you lay it out in the book nicely, but talk about your relationship with your father. Dad was an alcoholic. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had, uh, he, because of that, uh, he could never really hold a job. Uh, he, I, I always say he had a drinking problem, which meant that he had a hitting problem. Uh, and when he, you know, when he got, uh, when he came in drunk, which was most nights, uh, there was always a question of whether or not he was going to go after mom. And if he went after mom, especially I'm the oldest, uh, and, 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 and the son. And I think, uh, oldest sons tend to take the, uh, or more apt to take the protective role, you know, if mom's in trouble. So if he's going to go after mom, then I was going to go after, go after him. As I got older, you know, that became, you know, I mean, it's nothing to, to shove aside a five-year-old. It's a little more tricky to shove aside, you know, 10, 12, and 14. So uh, as I got older, uh, we were more apt to get into, into you know, physical, uh, physical scrapes. Uh, but, you know, I mean, when he wasn't drinking, he was, you know, he was could be the best man in the world, funniest, uh, funniest storyteller uh, in the world. Uh, but uh, when he was drinking, which, again, was, you know, most of the time, then there was this whole other side of him that uh, that was really kind of abusive, not just to me, uh, but to uh, to my, my mom and my uh, and my siblings. And he and I, in particular, probably had a, a difficult relationship because I was not the kid he wanted. He wanted uh, he wanted a, a a son who could you know he could rough house with and 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 go out and, and and do all that kind of stuff with, or at least you know wrestle on the floor with that sort of stuff. And I was a I was a bookworm all my life. Uh, you know, I was I was a bookish kid in glasses, and I really didn't care a whole lot about wrestling. I didn't care a whole lot about sports. Give me a book, leave me alone, and I'm a happy kid. 
And that's something he uh, he really did not understand, really did not have really had trouble with, which, you know, as I think about it, looking back from his perspective, you know, dad, you know, had maybe seven years of formal education. He was a farmer's son and uh, maybe he couldn't see the or appreciate the importance of this to me. So uh, we were always coming at each other from from different tracks um, all of his life, I guess. Attack this book from various angles, from various perspectives. Talk about uh, some of the other journeys that you outline in this book as well. Well, again, I interviewed a bunch of men, and, and uh, they spoke about uh, either their issues with their own dads, whether their dads were absent, or whether their dads were were emotionally withholding, or whether their dads were, again, as in my case, there, but but also uh, physically abusive. One of the other things that that we kind of get into in the book is. Uh, this whole story about the um, about dad's um, absence. African American fathers have this reputation uh, for being uh, for being not there. Uh, and, and you know, I met I met a number of men uh, who 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 fit into that into that profile. You know, one man I, if I recall, it's been a while since I since I wrote or read the book. But as I recall, there was one man who told a story that the first time he met his dad, they were both in jail, which is just sort of you know. <laughs> A, a hell of a of, of a story to tell almost almost a parody of the uh of the image uh, of, of dysfunction that unfortunately attends us as african-american fathers so when i look at your background i look at the fact that so you wrote for casey Kasem's american talk for top 40 once upon a time when you won your pulitzer prize it was a quote from bob costas that said what took them so long you've run in some very interesting yeah. circles and I wonder what the conversation sounds like when it comes to black fatherhood, when you are talking to people all over this country from various socioeconomic backgrounds. Well, it's changed somewhat. Um, the, the conversation once upon a time when I first wrote the book was, what can we do as, as African-American men to become better fathers, to, uh, to, uh, to improve ourselves and that, and that way but what i've come to understand and what later research has shown is that uh as fathers we are actually more involved not less involved but tend to be more involved than other fathers we are less likely to be married to the to the mother of our children which is something that's kind of going on across the board the, this generation is less likely to marry and when they do marry they marry later but uh, even though we're less likely to be married, we are more likely to be there for uh, listening to prayers, doing homework, fixing meals, changing diapers, taking, you know, going to the park, all that fatherhood stuff. We're actually more likely to be involved with that. I, I just find that very um, uplifting. It's one of, the few, one of the few times I've been, I've been this happy to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, from that article that you wrote, it was from a survey of more than 10,000 minutes says, and it said that African-American men are, are more likely than white or Hispanic dads to eat with their children, dress their children, help their children right. go potty, play with their children, read to their children, or to be, as you said in a word, involved. And you're pointing out this right. is one of the, the, the few times that you are very happy to be wrong. Yeah, Let's I think, you know, there's a tendency to use uh, the fact that, that father and mother are unmarried as a proxy for father being uninvolved. And I understand that, that makes logical sense. You assume you, well, the one is true, so you assume the other to be true. Uh, on the other hand, you know what they say, what happens when you assume. And so not just me, but a lot of us assume from the marriage statistics 
a lot of us as African-American men assume from the marriage statistics that uh, the black fathers were less likely to be involved. And what we discover is that the opposite is true. So that's, uh, that's very, that's very touching. I mean, it's very heartwarming. Uh, the, the column that you mentioned proceeded from a news item about a father, I believe he was going to Morehouse, who uh, couldn't get uh, childcare for his uh, infant daughter. Uh, his wife had, had to run some errands and he didn't want her trying to take the baby on the bus. So he took his daughter to, to class with him where he's studying kinesiology, I believe, which, you know, I'm a word guy. That's, that's like, I, that's way over my head. I had no idea that it even existed, but the brother studied kinesiology. And when his daughter starts fretting, uh, the teacher, the male teacher takes the daughter in, in the uh, baby uh, carrier and, and, and pulls her to his chest while he's teaching a lesson. That was such a beautiful picture of not just African-American fatherhood, but fatherhood, and then specifically African-American fatherhood uh, of, of what you would want it to be. Not just his father, uh, you know, extending himself for his daughter, but then this community, you know, this other man stepping out from this community of men to say, okay, I, I got you. I see you're struggling a little bit here, trying to take notes and tend to your daughter. I'll hold your daughter while, while, while you take the notes. That was just such a beautiful picture and, and such, a, such a contradiction to what we as African-American uh, people and men in particular have been led to believe. So I saw that you mentioned that photo. That photo went viral at the time it was released. Was that yes. the moment that you started to rethink the thesis from the original book or from your book? That was the moment that gave me an excuse to write about it. I actually heard about that study from a Father's Day uh, sermon that my pastor preached maybe a year or two before that. And, uh, you know, that was always in the back of my mind. Oh, I need to get I need to to comment on this. And then when I saw that that viral photo, it's like, OK, this is the perfect opportunity to, to marry those two things together and bring this out. What was interesting is <laughs> and I used to get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, compliment from from my non-black readers uh, about how you know they were proud I was so forthright and challenging dysfunction in my own community and oh, da 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 and some of those same readers were very offended at the idea that no black fathers are actually better fathers right and a lot right. of people that blew their minds they really were offended at the idea that here here's an area where black men are actually not 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 just uh, not doing bad but doing better than mm -hmm. than others that really blew a lot of people's minds mm -hmm. that's what i was going to ask you so i'll go to the other question that i wanted to ask <laughs> I, <laughs> I know in the african-american community it is anathema when we call each other out publicly you know and, and when you do that sometimes you get excoriated by your own when president obama talked about fatherhood and, and men not being as present as they should be in the african-american community he got blasted publicly by a lot of african-american leaders because they thought it was inappropriate did you suffer any backlash from the black community when you wrote the book no but i mean you know me and president obama you know we're, we're on different planes uh and he has a he has a you know much more powerful pulpit i, I understand why people were upset because basically it becomes this political thing of him, uh, you know, calling out, calling out black folk while the Republicans are standing by, you know, cheering. But the thing that a lot of people who don't know us don't know about us is that African-Americans seem to be the most self-critical of, of people. We, nobody criticizes us like we criticize us. Right. And so a lot of what I got when I was getting criticism was, yeah, you were right. But did you have to put it in the newspaper? 
and my thing is that's the only forum I have. That's the platform that I have. And I'm not going to shirk from saying something I feel is critical to be said uh, just because I can't get a, you know, get, get a bunch of brothers together and whisper it in their ear one at a time. This is the forum I've got. And frankly, I also think it's healthy for white folk to understand that we can be self-critical because they have this, they, they, they often evolve this idea that we're sort of monolithic thinkers. You know, we all think the same. We all do the same. We right. all are the same. If you if you met me, you met you. Right. <laughs> if you met you, you met these other brothers. Right. You and know? nothing could be further I from mean, the that's, truth. I mean, that's the whole crux of racism. So I think it's good for them to see, you know, black folks, you know, respectfully and with love. Absolutely. Respectfully and with love saying, you know what, we could do X better. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. In that article, you said that your pastor called this man a James Evan type dad. James Evans yeah. type dad, quote unquote. Is there yeah. an idealized version of fatherhood that, that you kind of clung to growing up, seeing that your situation with your father wasn't what you thought it should be? Well, I'm embarrassed to say it now, given what's happened to him since then, but you know, I wanted Bill Cosby. Right. <laughs> you know, I wanted Cosby as my dad. I grew up with the Brady Bunch. I wanted Mike Brady, all the TV, all the good TV dads. You know, that's who I wanted, who were understanding and solved your problems in 22 minutes or 45 <laughs> minutes, depending on whether it was an hour long or, or a drama or a sitcom. Right. You know, that's what I thought life should be. I, I figured, as you know, if it's happening on TV, it has to be real somewhere. So I'm the only one who's going through this. And, you know, obviously, by the time Cosby came along, I was I was in my uh, probably, I guess, 30s or somewhere in there. So uh, I was I was I was aware that this was just television, but I think part of me still felt like everybody else or most everybody else has this has this down, has this knocked out, that knows what they're talking, you know, know how to do this. But I and, and a very few of us don't. One of the things that, that I've learned in growing since then is that many of us and probably, you know, dare say most of us. Uh, are still trying to are still trying to figure this stuff out, and are right. coming from situations that were not ideal, and that has been um, I don't know what to say. That that's been kind of reassuring, but also saddening to think that there are a lot of people who can relate to situations like the one that I had and the one that the men that the men described in the book. In one of your interviews, you had an interesting quote, and and I'm paraphrasing. It's not about being the father you never had. It's about being the father that your child needs. Talk about that for us, please. Yeah, that uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. I noticed uh, from from men who I interviewed who didn't have whatever it was they felt they needed from their fathers that they went about and in, in when they became fathers, they went about trying to replace that thing mm -hmm. instead of listening to their child and giving the child what the child needed. Right. And that was crystallized once for me when I, when I interviewed a man, I think his story is in the book, who talked about when his child was born, uh, the, uh, when his child was, was coming up, the new Star Trek, the second in the, uh, the, the second of the, the, the Star Trek trilogies. I think there were three trilogies and there was a, a second set of movies that came out, I guess, about 20 years ago. And um, he, he, you know, was telling us, oh, we're going to see the new Star Trek. He's really, he's hyped and he's really excited. Oh boy, we're going to see, boy, you're going to love this. This is great. You're going to love this new Star Trek movie. And, you know, he takes his son to the Star Trek movie and hey, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? And buys the popcorn and drinks and all this. And we're having a great time. And, you know, his son is not, it's okay, dad, but his son is not really with it. You know, like, dad, why is this such a, a big deal? I'm not really getting it. And he said, mm -hmm. 
he said he had to come to understand that he had, when the first set of Star Trek movies came out, he really wanted his dad to take him to see those movies. And his dad wasn't there, his dad didn't do it, his dad failed him for whatever reason. So when the second set comes out 25 years later and he's a grown up, his thing is I'm gonna take my kid to do what I wanted to do. And you know, as opposed to maybe checking in with your kid and finding out what is it your kid needs from you. Cause it's not about giving your kid what you needed from your daddy. It's about giving your kid what your kid needs right. from you. Right. And I think that's a, you know, that's difficult sometimes for us as fathers to really, to really catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I caught myself a few times giving my kids, you know, stuff that, that I wish I'd had as opposed to stuff that they particularly wanted or needed. Excellent. So, Mr. Pitts, I want you to stay in on this conversation with these two gentlemen and just giving you the heads up as we segue into the next uh, section. I want to touch on your book, Freeman, for a little bit as we talk okay. about Juneteenth, if you will. But bringing, bringing Corey and Brandon, bringing Corey and Brandon into the conversation, uh, you two, these two gentlemen are known for their organizations, their working community. Uh, very few people have had a, a chance to be reintroduced to them as fathers. I know that Brandon has, you know, a, a handsome little guy. Corey has two handsome boys and a beautiful baby girl, and they are both wonderful fathers. So I wanted to explore that. I'll start with you, Brandon, since you're closer. Give us your journey of fatherhood, and, and what has it meant to you uh, since becoming a father, how's that changed you? Well, you know, I think fatherhood has been probably one of the most challenging um, things in my life, and in, in, in a good way. I mean, you know, it really tests your, well, first of all, it tests your patience uh, wholeheartedly um, because, you know, when you're, when you're by yourself, per se, you're doing things for yourself. You're, you know, you're grinding, you're doing you know, the day-to-day things. When another person, another human life enters the equation, you're no longer just living for yourself. You know, you're living for somebody else. And so when my son was born, I remember being in the delivery room and I just, that moment of, this is no longer just about you. This is about another person. And so as you know, I'm doing all the other things in my life, my organization or what have you, now I'm like, you know, now I'm not just living for myself, I'm living for my son, and I want to create a legacy for him. Now I want him to look at me and say, hey, you're a role model. And, you know, in order to do that, I have to be on my P's and Q's. And he's watching everything that I'm doing. And I think that's the, that's the thing that, that sticks out for me the most, is just being mindful of the simple fact that he's watching me every step of the way. And to be a man and to, and to try to raise him in the ways uh, of, of respect and love, uh, and, and it's, it's a tough, tough, tough gig, but the journey has been so beautiful. He's getting ready to be four years old in August, and so I'm, I'm reflecting on that as it gets closer. You know, you stare at him, and you look at him, and I'm like, wow, you, you, you blink, and it's like, here we are. But this journey has been so beautiful, and again, challenging at the same time, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm-hmm. Let's go to you, Corey. Corey, talk about your journey a bit as a father. So, um, First, I have, I have five, so I have two bonus <laughs> children as well. <laughs> um, but for me, it started around age 21. And I think um, Brand, I'm 37 years old now, and Brandon hit it right on, on the nose. You come to the realization that you're not just living for yourself anymore. And I had to come to that realization in my early 20s um, that I wasn't just living for me anymore and that everything that I was doing at that point when he came into the world and moving forward, um, my decisions weren't just affecting me anymore. They were affecting him. 
Uh, and I wanted to make sure that the example that I had in my father growing up, I wanted to be that and try to be, you know, beyond that. Uh, my, my father was a great father growing up. Um, so I had a great example inside of my household of, of hard work and uh, perseverance, dedication. And I wanted to make sure that, that my son got the same experience that I got inside the house, mm -hmm. but also um, to try to, to take it further. Um, so just that realization that you're not living for yourself anymore and um, the weight of it. Uh, some guys, they embrace it. Some guys don't. And for me, um, it was a challenge that I definitely wanted to embrace to make sure that, you know, our legacy as cook men and uh, as black men in general just kind of move forward. So, Corey, I want to stay with you for a minute because <clears throat> you've had the experience that so many of the men, all of the men that Mr. Pitts interviewed for his book did not have. Mm -hmm. You know, these men were trying to create a model for themselves that they hadn't themselves been exposed to. You come from a family of exemplary men, strong father, strong brother. How much have you leaned on that, um, especially in your early years as a father, that first time out? Talk about how much is, it has meant to have this solid backing going into this experience as a new father. Well, I found out early on in my life that how important support was. And I had systems around me, not just only in my household, but in my church. And those support systems were extremely important um, to my growth and my development. And I saw how important it was to, to guys and men around me as well. And so it, that really played a, a large role in how I viewed uh, fatherhood, my father also wasn't just a father in the household. He was a father in the community. Mm -hmm. So some of my best friends that didn't have fathers in their household, I didn't know until later on in life, but my dad was actually going and, and helping out with Christmas gifts. And anytime we had uh, things going on at school, my dad was there, he was cooking, he was working in the lunchroom. Uh, so things that you don't normally see and that I kind of took for granted growing up, uh, my dad was, was that uh, and, and a lot more that I didn't even realize. And so I had an example and as I grew up and grew older, I think um, kind of how we grew up in our household and my brother and, and my dad, and there's always been this, this sense of like this healthy competitiveness uh, between, uh, between us in, in good ways, uh, not, not negative ways. And my dad was uh, above and beyond as a father. And so I wanted to make sure that I could, could do the same and, and match or try to exceed um, you know, what he had done for us and, and done for so many people in our community. Brandon, talk about the roadmap for you. What, what does that look like um, from your childhood? My, my father is a great man. You know, he, he, um, he didn't know his real father. Uh, but there was a, a, a man, um, my grandmother married, who you know interjected his himself into my dad's life. But my dad was a street kid, so he 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 did his thing. And 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 from that perspective, he was able to offer me this idea of this is not the way to go because I've been there, I've done that, mm -hmm. I got lucky, I got blessed to be able to get out of this situation. Not many of my peers have been able to do that. He would tell me the stories about people who have gotten, you know, went to jail or people who you've seen died and just that whole lifestyle that he was a part of. And my dad, when my dad met my mother, 
he, he changed. She was, she was a positive influence for him. My dad was always a hardworking man, though. That's the thing. He was always a hardworking man, you know, despite everything. He always kept a job. Um, but he, he did his thing, you know, from time to time. And so my dad and I have regular conversation. That's like, that's, that's my homie. That's my best friend. And he's, he's just so real and authentic with me. And I think that's where really it comes from is, is the realness with him and our relationship. He's a father. I, I know I said best friend, but he's, he's my father. Like, that's my... That's how I view him, and we have these dialogues that are uplifting. And he worked at a steel mill for all his life. He just retired back in January, but he was a welder. And so that blue collar lifestyle. And when I was, when, as soon as I turned 18, on my 18th birthday, I was eligible to work in the steel mill. And so on my 18th birthday, I found myself in a hole cleaning out dirt. <laughs> and this is what he wanted. He wanted, he said, you're going to understand what it's like to, to this work ethic. I want you to stay in school. I don't want you to go down this wrong path. I don't want you to go down this way. The things that I used to do, I, I, I'm working hard now, so you don't, you don't have to do that stuff. This is where I want your head to be. And so I always respected that. And when I ended up working in the steel mill, I, I had a newfound respect for my father. I always respected him. But when you're in that environment and you see what he does day in and day out, right. hot days, mm -hmm. cold days, he's in this cold steel mill just plugging away to provide for his family. And we went through some hard times. We weren't the richest. We weren't, you know, we were, it, was, it, was, it was tough sometimes. My mom is disabled, so at one point she, she, she can no longer work. And so my dad was, he was doing his thing. And I look at that and I, I just, am, I'm in awe of him. And I remember his last day of work and I went, I went home to surprise him. His, the last day, my son and I went down there and he came through that door and it was like the last, I just remember seeing him for so many years go in and out of those doors to work mm -hmm. every day, no matter what, not feeling well, sick, he was still plugging away. And so he, it's just admirable. And I, and I aspire to, to be that type of man and that type of father. Mm -hmm. So when I, um, my son was born, again, it was, I had this, this, this framework already laid out for me. That this is how we're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to be as a, as a father. And so, and he's of course an upstanding grandfather and he loves my son you know, immensely. And so I'm just blessed in, the, in that regard to have uh, a man like him, and he always told me, and I, and I do believe to some degree, it, of course it affected him that he didn't know his real father, but he never questioned his mother. He never, he just, he respected her, my grandma, and he just kept on doing his thing, kept on living. The man that was, that mm -hmm. entered, entered his life, that was his father, and that's, and that's how, how he acted and, and, and worked towards. So, you know, I, I look at him as this role model to, 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 to a high degree, and I could only, he, and he gave me everything that I, I could possibly want uh, because he never had. Mm. And so for him to, again, that, during that time period of the steel mill, you know, to establish, he wanted to really hit in on this work ethic. And I remember every time I would come back to college, I would bring my hard hat with me uh, and it would be dirty. And you knew he was yeah, about to yeah, put yeah, you to work. Right. <laughs> and any time I didn't want to study or I was just like, man, forget this. I don't want to be here anymore. I take a look over in that corner and I'm like, eh. You see that hard hat. But it wasn't to disrespect because I, I respect the men who were who are in that line of work and they were there for 30 plus, 40 plus years. 
I had met so many great individuals, so I respected it, but it wasn't for me, and I knew that. And right. it, it was for somebody else, my father did it, it wasn't for me. And yeah. so that was, that was, that's a major, major point. Our story sounds similar in that respect. My father worked at the shop for 38 years. I knew it wasn't for me, but I respected the fact that he had the, the stick-to-itiveness and the dedication and the discipline to do it. Mr. Pitts, I want to bring you back into this conversation. There's a famous scene in the Fresh Prince, Prince of Bel-Air that I think resonates with most black fathers. Yeah. When Ben Vereen, the father of Will Smith, playing the father of Will Smith, comes back into his life and they get involved with this camaraderie and for a brief moment, it is everything Will envisioned about having a father until his father up and leaves again. He throws a fit, his Uncle Phil is hearing him out and at the end of this tirade, he looks at Uncle Phil and says, man, how come he don't want me? And he breaks down crying. Scene makes me cry every time. Yeah. Of the men that you interviewed, did you meet one that had that kind of angst and sadness and anxiety and lamented what he didn't have growing up to that extent? I think most of them uh, did. Uh, some of them verbalized it, some of them didn't, but I think most of them did. The thing that you have to understand about uh, fathers as opposed to mothers, and this is not not fair and it's sexist and it's everything else you want to say, but it's also reality, is that um, mom doesn't really have a choice. Most times, the way, we, the way we envision parenthood, mom doesn't really have a choice but to be there. We perceive mom as not having a choice, but dad has a choice. And again, it's, it's not fair, it's not right, it's whatever. But if you go into, if you live life knowing that, then, there's always going to be that feeling when dad is not there. Why did he not choose me? You know, mom, it's easy to take mom for granted because you say, quote, mom didn't have a choice. And in fact, when mom is not there, it's almost a, a greater betrayal. It's almost like, a, you know, something in the universe has gone wrong. How can she not be there? There's, there's greater condemnation on her. But dad can dad can absent himself from that situation and still have our and have society's respect dad cannot be there and still and still hold his head up in, in polite society so when he has that option he has the option of you or he has the option of going off doing something else and he chooses going off and doing something else that hurts in a way that i, I think nothing else does and that that is is just hard to uh hard to deal with uh, people ask me about my dad all the time you know would we have been better had he not been there. And in some ways we would have, we wouldn't have had the violence in the household. Uh, but uh, in other ways we would not have. In other ways, I'm glad he was there because I didn't, you know, I didn't end up with the questions that the Will Smith character did and that a lot of these other men did about why didn't he, you know, why wasn't he there? Why didn't he want me? And I think those questions are, are, are devastating to have to go through life with. So of everything, of everything else, you know, that, that, that he gave me, he, uh, or that he didn't give me, he did give me the gift and the challenge of his presence. Mm. And that was a very important thing. I did not have to ask, ask the question, why didn't he want me? Right. You know, he was there. He wanted, he wanted us, you know, for better and for worse. He right. was there and he, he was wanted there. us. I want to segue back to Corey and, and look at fatherhood from a different perspective. Uh, one of my best friends is a father of three boys, and he just had his first daughter. He and I have had a lot of conversations about being a girl dad. Having daughters changed my life personally. I can do a whole show by myself, solo, on what it means to be the father of daughters, but I digress. Corey, talk about how much it changed you when you became the father of a little girl. 
It's definitely, it's a whole lot different. Um, you know, the boys, of course, I always wanted a boy, and I'm glad I had boys first, but um, it's something about a girl. Um, and it's almost this instinctual, like nurturing kind of uh, feeling that they have. Like, it's just almost like, it's instinctual for girls. So my daughter's always checking on me. She's always hugging, always kissing. Mm -hmm. If I if I leave, she's at the door crying if I didn't give her a hug or a kiss. <laughs> and so it's those things. Uh, and my boys, I mean, they, they of course, you know, they they want to dap up their hugs sometimes. My oldest boy, I got to fight him to hug him now at this point. Uh, but yeah, it's just something about um, about the, the young girls. Um, and it's just it's so beautiful to see, um, you know, when she came out and, and just that look in her eyes. It, it's definitely a difference. Um, love them all the same. Um, but definitely it, it just tugs in your heart a little bit differently when it comes to the girls. So, Corey, you're amongst friends. You're here with your brothers. Confession time. Are you wrapped? Is she, is, does she have you wrapped around her finger? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> most definitely. All she has to do is put on those puppy eyes, and, and it's, it's on. she gets whatever she wants. And her, her mom would say the exact same thing. Like, you always giving in to her, but it's just it's a part of it. Um, but, yeah, she's um, that's my, my baby girl, and that's what I call her. So, Brandon, you talk about the, the work ethic that your father gave you and just how much you respected him as a man and even how he came to be the man that he, that he is today. What takeaways, What give me the primary takeaway or two that you are intentional about when it comes to your son that you got from your father? Wow, you know, there's, there's, there's so many. One thing, and when I think about the trials and tribulations we had, the one word that comes to my mind is perseverance mainly because despite everything and, and composure, my father was a very composed man and it never allowed anxiety to override his, his mental capacity. I'm sure he had it, but he never really displayed it to that degree. And so I suffer from anxiety and I get that from my mother. I love her dearly, but that's the one thing that I'm like, I wish I could, I could have dealt without that one. But he, his composure and to be, and to be able to look at, the, at him as the figurehead that despite what was going on despite the storm that we were in the man was composed and he persevered and he got us out of those situations and when i think about my son i i, I feel like we're going to come into some situations and already have been in some situations that are going to trouble the waters but we have to maintain composure again my son is watching he's observing i don't want to pass that anxiety on to him i want him to feel comfortable mm. So it's that idea of, of perseverance and composure that we're gonna weather the storm and we're gonna push through. And those were the so, two main points that I have from takeaway from my father. Mm -hmm. So the two things that June, um, when you think about the month of June, the two things that stand out, <clears throat> one Father's Day obviously, and we're discussing that right now. The other thing, bringing Mr. Pitts back into this conversation, Juneteenth, not just a celebration of the holiday, but this year it was special because it was signed into law by President Biden that it is now a federal holiday. Mr. Pitts, I know that you wrote a book called Freeman, and it deals with this, it's kind of a fictional narrative of this post-Civil War era. Give us your thoughts on just what it means for Juneteenth to be a federal holiday. Well, my novel was about, uh, uh, in, in the large view, my, my novel is about the, the struggle of the formerly enslaved people 
to try to figure out what what freedom means and um that's kind of the sort of the same thing that 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 juneteenth brings upon us particularly as it becomes a federal holiday uh we have the celebration of 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 you know of the the last enslaved people finally being set free from their captors in um in uh texas and, and that's a wonderful thing and it's right that it should be celebrated but we also have to remember that this federal holiday comes about in an era of retrenchment of jim crow when our voting rights are under assault our human rights are under assault as in derek chauvin and brianna taylor and ahmaud arbery and uh you know a lot of victories that we would have considered won uh are being relitigated a lot of doors that we figured okay we that that's closed and done are being reopened so it's kind of an odd time to be uh and, and maybe for that reason an apropos time to be talking about uh juneteenth uh and the whole question of what freedom means because just as the formerly enslaved people had to define for themselves what freedom means or meant in 1865 and forward we find ourselves struggling with the same questions right now here in 2021 what does freedom mean is this, is this really freedom when i have to worry that my that my vote uh is going to count is this really freedom when i have to worry that uh getting pulled over for a traffic violation is going to turn into uh you know a meme with my death uh i i i am convinced and i'm persuaded that, that that's not really freedom so you know the the battle goes on corey i want to bring you into this you, your family has been entrenched in the church most, if not all, of your life, if I'm not mistaken. You know, we did a, a special here on WQLN, the black church. We aired it anyways. And just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful narrative of just what the black church has meant in the African-American community going back to the days of slavery. We talk about Juneteenth and what that means to the community and, and, and just the struggle that has come about from that era. Give us a snapshot of some of the conversations that you're hearing from people be in and around your church community about Juneteenth and the struggle that even led to this holiday uh, being made official? Uh, there's a lot of, of positive conversation. Of course, there's still the, the conversation of there's, there's still a lot more to be done. But kind of taking it back just a little bit, um, the church was the foundation really for a lot of the civil rights and a lot of the things that we, we see and we take advantage of today. We didn't have places to organize, but our local churches and it was our pastors that really helped to really further those conversations and help things get moved. Um, and now, um, you know, things have changed. The, the church is still a part of a lot of the things that we, we do as far as civil rights and as far as, you know, advancing those conversations. But there is not really, I guess, the, the centerpiece anymore like it used to be back uh, back then. And so it's still, um, I know a lot of the pastors that I've talked to, uh, you know, Pastor Mock, uh, Dr. Uh, Paris Baker, a lot of these pastors are still very active. They're still um, realize that, yes, we've come a long way, but there's still so much more work to be done. Um, and so that's kind of the conversations and, and kind of what I've been saying around it. People are excited about where we're at, but there's still a lot more work to be done. Well, the idea of there's a lot more work to be done, Brandon, I want to talk about your organization, Open Eyes, because you're intentionally going after that in society. And so where Juneteenth is concerned, as both of these other guests stated, it is a wonderful thing. But there is this stark realization that we're in this time in history right now where from an African-American standpoint, people are saying enough because there have been so many things going on that America just kind of uh, 
silently and tacitly approved of. Talk about your work in the, in the, in the greater Erie community with opened eyes and uh, diversity, real inclusion, and not just these buzzwords. What are you discovering um, in your line of work? Well, I think, you know, I won't, you know, opened eyes is that, is that driving force in regards in that diversity education. And when I think about the ways we can impact our community, I think that idea of knowledge and knowledge being uh, power. And so we have to, and, and in regards to Juneteenth, it's, it's you know, it's, this has been, I was walking into a store the other day and I saw a whole section of Juneteenth memorabilia, you know, just, just a whole Juneteenth uh, merchandise. And I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is major. This, this, is, this is a big leap. There's still so much to do. What we're seeing right now is organizations, due to all of these things that have happening with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, organizations now are, are reviewing their, their policy and their procedures, their diversity policy and procedures, and really looking internally. And I challenge people to say, have you reviewed your, your policy? What does that look like? Are you familiar with it? Do you even have one? And so what we're trying to do, and when I say challenge, I'm not necessarily meaning, I'm not meaning anything in a negative light. Challenges can be positive. We have to challenge ourselves to advance. And so we have these systemic issues that are still plaguing our country, plaguing our community, and we need to review and reflect on ways to inclusively work together because this isn't just about certain individuals. This isn't about certain races or colors or creeds. This is about all of us. And if we really want to advance, we have to understand that we have to be inclusive. We have to cohesively work together. And this goes back to that idea of equality versus equity. I, I do think Juneteenth, is a, it, it, that's, a, that's a major move. We want more. We, we, want, we want more. And I think in order for us to do that, we have to have these difficult conversations. And so with my organization, that's, that's what we do. That's the, that's the idea, that's the philosophy, is this what are you concept in regards to self-exploration and mindfulness and being mindful of self and the environment that's around you and how we can advance our organization, our school, and our community at large. Mm -hmm. Mr. Pitts, you wrote an article last June and it was entitled, you know that racist thing you said? Skip the lame apology and try this instead. You've written some very, very um, poignant and sometimes even controversial articles around this conversation of race. Talk about the contents of not just that particular opinion piece, but some of the other things that you've written along the conversation of racism in America. Well, that particular piece, and it's funny you should mention it because I just uh, reread it for the first time maybe a couple of days ago. So I guess that, that was unknowingly to prepare me for your question. Um, that piece was was uh, written uh, about a gentleman who had, uh, you know, mocked, as I recall, the uh, the death of uh, George Floyd and, and and some other things, and then coming back and saying that would come all, would become almost the cliche thing for, for white Americans when they're caught doing racist stuff, they always begin by saying, I'm not a racist. I don't know how that happened. Michael Richardson, the the, co the comedian, the alleged comedian uh, from Sein of Seinfeld fame, first thing he said uh, after he um, called a, a patron, a heckler, uh, the N-word and, and talked about lynching him, the first thing he said was, I don't know how this could happen. I'm not racist. So, you know, one thing that I try to get uh, you know, one thing I try to do for, for, for white readers is to be able to position uh, 
discussion so that they are able to envision themselves as part of a solution and not simply uh, irretrievably, irretrievably part of a problem. And I think it's really a difficulty for them a lot of times to understand that racism is not just this personal failure that you are aware of in yourself and that you perceive and that you work to overcome. It is the water that you swim in, it is the air that you breathe. It is inculcated in you from a very early age, the, the, the presumptions and perceptions. Uh, and so getting rid of that takes more than just your conscious goodwill and, and your willingness to go to a Will Smith movie or buy a Beyonce CD uh, or stream a Beyonce song. Uh, it, it requires a willingness to, to really be aware of the assumptions that you make. Uh, the assumptions that maybe you don't even know you're making. And so that's what that column was about. And that's what a lot of my work is about, trying to get readers to really deal with the whole structure of, of, of racism, deal with the idea of how race is constructed in this society. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it can be rewarding when, when people get it. Uh, it can be incredibly frustrating when they don't, because you have to remember that if you're white, you have a vested interest in not really understanding how race uh, how race works, because if you truly understand and have to deal with how race works, what you're going to deal with is going to make you feel very bad. There are a lot of black folks I've met who who don't want to deal with race or what they're now calling you know the trauma of our past, just because it makes them feel bad or it makes them feel sad. Uh, with a lot of white folks, they don't want to deal with those same passages, no, that same trauma, because they're they're afraid of of having to deal with guilt. And my feeling is that I understand both of those emotions, but the fact of the matter is that unless you are able to view what happened and still happens in this country directly and, and straight on and with clear eyes, we're always gonna be circling around the same uh, you know, unresolved uh, situation, the same unresolved traumas. So that's what I try to get, to get folks to do. I try to educate them to, to, to understand how race is constructed in America uh, not just how it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but how it is right here and now. I recently moderated an event for Erie Insurance around Juneteenth, and the theme was why all Americans should celebrate Juneteenth. Brandon, take that question on. Why is this a holiday that shouldn't be just the focal point of African Americans? Why should all Americans look at this for the federal holiday that it is yeah. now and say, yes, we need to all... Um, not just celebrate, but um, commemorate and just kind of represent this holiday. Why is that the case? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, it's, it's part of American history. You know, black history is part of American history. And we, we need to look at these things. This, is, this was about freedom. This was about a, a, a long time coming. And I think it's important for everybody to celebrate this because, and, and, and I think people try to use the narrative, oh, they're trying to substitute this for July 4th and Independence Day, this, that, and the third. It's like, why can't we have a part of this? Why, why can't we celebrate this together? It, it, I think it just goes to show you that with togetherness, with cohesiveness, as I stated before, we can make progress. And I think if we view it that way, uh, that, that, that shows power, that shows true universal uh, or unity. And that's really what I try to have dialogue with, with individuals and organizations is this idea of unity. And if we see what we can do collectively together, uh, we can really make the mission as progressive 
uh, as we possibly can. We just have to be proactive in doing so. So it's a beautiful celebration. I think when people hear certain things, you know, they, they say, oh, here we go, here we go again with this stuff. And people aren't really listening or, or understanding or feeling what this means and how this is important for our country. And so it's, like, it's that idea of, of, of being active listeners. And that's one area of, of dialogue that is, is essential and is, is that idea of active listening and listening to understand and not listening to respond. And that's important. And if we continue to have that communication with one another, we'll see things go advance even further. Excellent point. Corey, you have been teaching music to students for several years now through your organization, Life Through Music. This is something that is a wonderful form of interpretation, expression, and allows kids to kind of come out, come into their creative element and express themselves. You know, when you think about holidays like Juneteenth, you know, the role that, that music has played even is significant. Is that something that you've leaned into with our students, connecting music and their heritage and using it as a teaching tool? Sure, and matter of fact, one of my, my former students, um, Diogenes Matthews, sang um, the National Negro Anthem at City Hall when um, the, the mayor decorated um, this as a, a local uh, holiday. And so um, he gave the proclamation she sang at the, the mayor's press conference, which is something that's never been done before. So now some of my students are starting to be a part of local history to be able to help to commemorate and, and celebrate and get the message out about how important um, this is for, for all of us. Uh, and music is so important, um, of course, to me. Um, but, you know, a lot of my students, it's, it's what they identify with. You know, some people is, is basketball, you know, and they, they spend their time and their efforts and their energy with basketball. The students I work with and the kids I work with, it, music is that thing that can help keep them on the right path, um, keeps them motivated. Um, it, that's what helped me at a young age. And that's why I really wanted to give that back to the kids here in the community. Mm -hmm. Mr. Pitts, your book, Freeman, you talk about what life was like when slaves were quote unquote free. If you can elaborate on that a touch as, as we are talking about Juneteenth being made a federal holiday because there's still this misconception, okay, it got signed, you all went about your business, conversation over. Talk about the complexities in detail a bit about what it looked like for these slaves as they came out of this institution. Uh, it looked like uh, confusion and chaos and hope and tragedy and everything else that you could, uh, that you could envision. Uh, my novel, Freeman, for instance, is about a man who uh, actually is already free. He's a black man working in Philadelphia when the news comes of the surrender of the South. And he starts literally the next day uh, walking down to Mississippi to find his wife whom he hasn't seen in 15 years. And that's based on fact. There were so many of the formerly enslaved people who, after uh, the war was over, went walking not just across uh, you know, town or across county uh, or even across state, but literally across country, cr crossing state after state, looking for uh, loved ones that had been sold away from them. Uh, so that's one of the things that, 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 that freedom uh, meant, uh, this whole effort to, to reunite our families, which continued, uh, the war ended in 1865, and this continued at least until the late 1870s. There's a scene in the book that is actually taken from life 
where a poor woman, uh, black woman, and she's become a little bit deranged, I guess, over the years, uh, is asking people if they have seen her her baby. Oh, you would know her if you saw her. She was the most beautiful little baby. And it turns out that the baby she's looking for was taken from her arms 20 years ago. So, you know, th that baby is now a young woman, likely with children of her own, and the mother's never going to see her again because, you, you know, you, you can't identify someone that, you know, from 20 years from 20 years before who was a baby at the time. So that's one of the things that it meant. The whole, it, it meant trying to define uh, your your rights as a worker. Uh, are you going to, uh, you know, be able now to, 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 to claim uh, income for, for your labor? And how does that work? How do income, how do uh, contracts work, especially when you can't read and you have to trust that, that man you're working for to tell you that, you know, what it is that you're marking your ex to. So there's all of that. There's, uh, there's, uh, marriages between enslaved people. A lot of times, uh, you know, what would happen is, okay, I'm, I'm quote unquote free now. I'm going to go try to find uh, the woman that I loved and, and that I was married to only to find out, oh, she's found, she's married to someone else now because we were parted 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever it was. And that woman that I, that I love to pieces is now with someone else. That's why slave, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, marriage vows for enslaved people said until death or distance us do part because they really had no forts in, in law. So if we're, if we're distant in time or in, or in space, we're no longer married. So there's all of this stuff that black people had to go through to figure out what being free meant. And this happened, you have to remember in an, in an atmosphere of just incredible violence, because just because the, you know, general, uh, um, Lee gave up the General Grant at Appomattox did not, for a lot of the men in the South, didn't mean anything. You know, you're still that same color and I'm still the color that I am. So I still have ownership of you. And if you're going to stand up and, and pre present yourself to me as a man or as a woman, I'm going to strike that down in the most violent way possible. The days right after the Civil War were some of the most violent days in the, in the history of this country. When black people were were hacked and burned and, and, and shot to pieces for the crime of standing up trying to be trying to be human beings. So, you know, freedom was not like, oh boy, we free now, throw down your hoe and, and, and do a jubilee. Freedom was, okay, that's nice, now what? Thank you so much for that. Gentlemen, in closing, very quickly, um, when you look back at the legacy of African-Americans in this country as we honor Juneteenth, Brandon, and then we'll go to you to close, Corey, um, a quick synopsis of one thing that stands out about black people during that era that you honor most in your heart. Well, give us one of those things. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of like, you know, the, the 1960s civil rights movement, Malcolm X, Martin Luther, um, Dr. Huey Newton, Bobby Seale. And, and when I was creating my organization, I was a big, big, fan of the Black Panther Party movement and how that was brought together and organized. And so I modeled a lot of like the way I moved and, and, and just that, that fire and that, that willingness to, that no matter what we come across, we're gonna push through. And so that was inspiring to me. So when I look at these, the African-American leaders of our time and those who have sacrificed themselves to advance I think about that and I instill that with even in my own organizational structure to, to say that, you know, and I've had some hard times even within, within my organization. But again, that idea of what we were talking about earlier about perseverance, I keep that going in every asset, every facet of my life, every area of my life. It's that idea of perseverance despite 
trial and tribulation. Excellent. Corey, one historical moment or, or, or one historical learning that kind of stands out in your mind when you think about the journey of black people leading up to this moment. Uh, one historical moment is uh, that always kind of plays in my mind is uh, Martin Luther King's speech on the National Mall. It's something that I was, um, it was, I think it was probably ingrained just because of the way the educational system was growing up in school, but it was uh, such a powerful moment to be able to organize. And, and as I, I've gotten older and as I've worked uh, in the nonprofit sectors, as I've worked in with politicians and just other groups, um, you understand the importance of, of organizing and how that can help to really advance an agenda. And so the importance of organizing and being able to, to mobilize a group to further the action um, is really how we can continue to fight and move uh, even further than we ever thought. I want to thank our guest, Leonard Pitts Jr., uh, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Miami Herald, Brandon Wiley, Executive Director of Open Eyes, and Corey Cook, CEO of Cook Media and Executive Director of Life Through Music. Thank you all so much for your deep and profound commentary on fatherhood and uh, you adding your commentary as well on Juneteenth. Thank you for joining us. That's it for our show today. Uh, tune in next month for more discussion and analysis with local and national guests. You can listen to our show on 91.3 FM every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. For WQLN NPR, I'm Marcus Atkinson. We will see you next time.